Today we'll begin a new book. It's always a wonderfully uncomfortable task in the weeks leading up. As you can know, I like to preach through books of the Bible, and when you finish one up, it's like, uh-oh, what's next? Well, the good news is we haven't run out of material yet, and I was figuring out at the pace I go, we should be good until I'm 273, and that would be awkward to listen to a 200-year-old preach, so we're in good shape. We were in, if you remember, 1 Corinthians, and then the Ten Commandments for many, many months, and I thought, and I'll trust it was from God, that we should spend some time in a gospel looking at the life of Christ directly, to go from the what we should do by grace through faith to what has been done for us. And we're going to do that in Mark's Gospel, taking a trip through it, obviously not all today. And Mark's Gospel is often the overlooked Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mark gets relegated to a second-string Gospel, and the others are the, the big boys. That's not really the way it's intended. So, Let's set the stage briefly. Mark's Gospel, it's fast-paced. You'll see as we go through, there's this word immediately. Forty-two times, twelve in the first chapter. Immediately, immediately, immediately. It means hurry up, go faster, faster, faster. So we'll preach through this probably in only a year and a half. This book is written to a non-Jewish audience. It won't really be a year and a half. It's written to a non-Jewish audience in Rome. Highly illiterate audience as well. That means we're in good shape for most of you, right? Not too smart, not Jewish, you're in good shape. It's, it's a, it's a quick-paced narrative to be read to people who are not familiar with Jewish tradition and custom, though it is still written for a Jewish audience. Let me ask you this question, though. Who is Mark? What do we know about Mark? Not a lot. We meet him in Acts 12, 12 verse 12. You could check and make sure I'm speaking truth here. Remember, Peter was in prison. He was going to be killed, an angel rescued him from prison, and when he came to himself, he went to a house, he knocked on the door, and a servant girl answered the door named Rhoda. And she was so excited to see him there having a prayer meeting for Peter, and God answered the prayers, and they responded perfectly. When you pray in a prayer meeting, you shouldn't expect what you're praying for, and if God answers it, you don't believe it. Isn't that how it works? And she leaves him at the door, and she goes, and they deal with that. But do you remember whose house it was that he went to? It's a woman named Mary who's identified as the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. That's Mark the author of this gospel. At the end of Acts 12.25, we see he goes on a trip with Barnabas and Saul. trip doesn't work out so well because he abandons them in 13.13. We know that he was not a prophet or a teacher or anybody significant. We see that at the beginning of Acts 13. And a couple interesting things also. 1 Peter 5.13, Peter refers to Mark as his spiritual son. You know what that means? Peter discipled him. So notice, Peter showed up at his house when he was living with his mom. He's a young guy at the time. So Peter knew him from a young age. He discipled him. Mark also hung out with Paul. He abandoned Paul. But then when you go to Paul's last letters, Philemon 24 and 2 Timothy 4.11, you see something very interesting. 2 Timothy in particular, Paul's locked up in prison. He's writing letters. Luke's with him. And he says, bring to me Mark because he is of great use to me. So what do we know about Mark? He was discipled by Peter, discipled by Paul. He was a wimp. He abandoned people. He wasn't really significant. And isn't that the type of person that God uses? An obscure, weak, unknown, scared sinner who he restores. Insignificant folks. That's what we have in Mark. All that being said, 
we'll get into Mark's gospel. Today we're going to look at the first eight verses. I'll read them, and then we'll unpack them. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts with wild honey and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now that very first verse, we could spend weeks in. Look at this. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. First question we should probably ask is, what is the gospel? I ask this question to people a lot. Someone tells me, oh, I'm a Christian. And I'll say, well, how did you come to know the gospel? And they look at you, try this. They look at you screwy like, huh? I say, well, well, how would you articulate to someone what's the gospel? What do you mean? Now, on occasion I'll find that you have an under-discipled person who, who they truly know what the gospel is, but they have trouble answering the question asked so directly. More often than not, what I find is, They'll, I'll say, well, do you know what the gospel is? What's the good news about Jesus? What, what do you mean? Well, well, what does it mean that you're a Christian? Well, well, I don't know. I was brought up and go to church. Well, what's the good news about Jesus? They look at you, screw it. You know what you have there? It's not a Christian. Now listen close. If you don't know what the gospel is, you can't be a Christian. It's a prerequisite. But Mark writes this. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You would expect... Let me explain for you the gospel. These are illiterate non-Jews. Let me explain to you the gospel and go on. You know, like Romans 1 through, through 3, he could unpack it and then build it. But no, he just says it. Why? Well, it was such a common word, he didn't need to unpack it. It's not the same today, is it? For a Jewish and a Gentile audience, gospel is an incredibly clear word. Now, I want you to notice something. If you look in your Bible at the top of that page, it doesn't say Mark's gospel, does it? It says, the gospel according to Mark. They all say that. The gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So gospel never refers to one of four books in the Bible. Gospel refers to something else. And it's very interesting what it refers to. Isaiah 40, verse 9 in particular. Mark quotes from Isaiah 40. But if you go to Isaiah 49, and you were a Jew at this time, you would be brought up memorizing massive quantities of scriptures. So you would look at this in Isaiah 49. Listen to this. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. You hear that phrase, good news, twice? It's the same word for gospel when you get to our English translations. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings Good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So here's what the gospel is. Isaiah 40, which, which Mark quotes here, it spoke of two future events and it proclaimed the gospel. The good news. The good news first was the Jews would come out of the Babylonian captivity. That happened. 
The second aspect of the good news was that God would come and reign from Jerusalem over his people, bringing peace, salvation, and blessing. John shows up and he says, I bring good news. He comes as a forerunner of the gospel. You go to to Malachi, we'll be there in a bit. All the Jews understood, Malachi 4, 5, that, that the Messiah would be coming. That was the good news. A king would reign who would bring peace and salvation and blessing and hope. Every Jew lived with that hope of this good news. They knew what the gospel was. Well, what about these Gentiles? This is an illiterate Roman audience in large part. How would they know this? They don't know Old Testament prophecy, do they? But they knew the word euangelion. See, archaeologists have found inscriptions, one in particular that's very interesting, where this word, it's a very common word, in regards to Augustus Caesar. You ever hear of him? When he became emperor, it was written on one of the tablets, the gospel of Augustus Caesar's reign, the good news of his reign. Do you know why? It was a king who was coming to reign, and they assumed he would bring blessing and peace and prosperity to his people. See, they knew what gospel meant, they just had it attached to the wrong king. So it says the beginning of the gospel, the good news, the good news, the great news that the king would come and reign and bring salvation and peace and blessing. It also says, though, the beginning. It's not because it's chapter one. Chapter four isn't going to say we're now at the middle of the gospel. And at the end of the book, it's not going to say here's the end of the gospel, because you realize the gospel doesn't end until Christ rules for all of eternity over the new heavens and the new earth. So the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus Christ wasn't his birth name? What do you want to name him? Jesus Harvey Christ. No. Jesus was his name. You know what Jesus is? It's a Greek form of a Hebrew name you might know better called Joshua. Do you know what Joshua means? God saves. Angel said, name this boy, God saves. Christ wasn't the last name, it was a title. It is a title. It means king, messiah, anointed one. It's saying, Jesus Christ Joshua the king. So we have the beginning of the great news of the reign that's coming of God with us, king, the son of God. Then we go to verse two. And he says, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. So what we're getting into here now is an announcement from Isaiah 40 and Malachi three. I'll give you a quick side note because you'll run into this throughout the Bible. If you ever check an Old Testament reference against the Old Testament reference itself. So if you were to flip your Bible to Isaiah 40 and read it and find this there, you would see that there's a little difference in the quotation. Why? Well, in part, sometimes the quotations are are just from a, um, a general reference pointing. Other times there's a point of clarification. The author is writing under inspiration. He's not giving a personal opinion. So what you'll notice here is there's a word, highway to road. It's a slight change of word, and I'll let you unpack it. But I want you to understand, sometimes you'll see differences, and there are reasons. It's not that it's, it's a distortion. Listen, if you were going to try to make up a book, you tidy up some of these things that are awkward to explain. There's a reason of clarification here. So the announcement, it comes from Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Let me show you something real quickly. If you turn left and you go right before Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, you run into the book of the Italian prophet Malachi. The Hebrews called him Malachi and they were right. He wasn't an Italian prophet. But at the very end of that, it says in verse four, chapter four, verse five, 
Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, you will find if you celebrate Passover, Jewish people will leave a, a door ajar. They'll leave a setting at the table because they anticipate the coming of Elijah. I remember one Passover, there was a knock at the door when I was a kid. And we thought, we thought, it's going down! It was someone who was supposed to go across the street. Well, what you're going to see here is this announcement is pointing back to Malachi 4 and Isaiah 40. And the announcement is, prepare. Now think about this. The head of state comes, or a monarch comes to America. We got the Pope coming in, in September. We should all go down and share the gospel with him, huh? The Pope's coming. So they prepare for the arrival of the Pope. You paint some stuff up, you lay out a red carpet, you get a band, do, 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 do. That's the president. I don't know what you play for the Pope. And people get all excited. Well, in days of, of past, there was no infrastructure. So when a monarch is coming, you didn't paint the buildings white and put a fresh coat of tar down on the road. You actually had to make a road because kings didn't ride on bumpy little winding paths through the mountains. And it says here, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And you know how they would make paths straight? They'd fill in valleys and blow out mountains and carve out the ground so it would be a straight highway to receive the monarch. Well, who did the building? They didn't get in touch with a GC and get a union shop to come in and do the road. Guess who did it? Slave labor. And guess who the slave labor was? The people. So it's not like a king's coming and they're like, woohoo! It's like, oh man. Back-breaking, sweaty, unpaid slave labor. We're fired up for the king to come, right? So he's saying, prepare the way for the king. He's saying also earlier, prepare your way. So there are two preparations. And it's really interesting when you look at this and you ask yourself about Jesus. Does Jesus come on the white horse saying, make the road straight, get the mountain out of the way, fill in the valley and do what I say or I'll destroy you? Or does he come as a servant? Does he stoop down and wash people's feet? Does he say, my yoke will weigh heavy on you and my burden will break you? Or does he say something exactly the opposite? You see, you have a conquering king coming, but he wasn't coming like a conquering king. And it wasn't slave labor to be conscripted. It was freedom to be offered to people who were bound in slavery. And this guy, John the Baptist, shows up to say this, to make this announcement. He calls the people to prepare their way. You do that by recognition of sin and repentance. And it says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. Now, John the Baptist, he's a crazy dude, right? He wore a camel hair suit, a leather belt around his waist, and he ate honey and locusts. He just, something snapped up top, right? A lot of people, they're like, well, John was a little crazy, and he was a little esoteric, and he was one of those crazy folks. And, but I'm going to show you something. He was the least crazy folk you probably would ever run into. John introduced, I'm sorry, Mark introduces him. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming. I'm, but he, what's wrong with Mark? See, he's quick. He wants to go immediately. Boom, boom, boom. He could have talked about John's miraculous conception. The other gospel writers did that. Remember that? Old couple, barren woman. He could talk about John being the greatest man who ever lived. Why would I say that? Well, because Jesus called him that. He could have talked about him being filled with the Spirit from the womb. He doesn't mention any of that. He just says he's out in the wilderness baptizing. He never intends to make John the central focus. He always wants to keep the focus on Christ. Let's talk the clothes and the locust, and then I want to show you something else about John. Zechariah 13.4. 
In Zechariah 13.4, it says, On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive. What does that mean? False prophets would show up, and they would, they would try to dress the part of a real prophet to be able to impersonate. See, the garment of a prophet was a camel hair garment, camel hair robe. I'll show you this right here. It says... They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. Who do you think they're talking about in that passage? You say, John the Baptist? I say, no, it's Elijah. It's 1 Kings 1.8. Remember, Elijah was on the run, the king wanted him dead, and someone had a sighting, and they said, no, no, they answered him. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. He said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Now, Malachi 4, didn't God say that he would send Elijah? And all of a sudden, out in the wilderness, there's this guy saying, prepare the way of the Lord, fulfilling Isaiah 40, talking to Malachi 3. And he's wearing a camel hair robe and a belt tied around his waist. And any thinking person at the time would say, wait, 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 wait a minute. This is, this is a little bit sketchy here. Could, could this be? Do you see what's going on? He didn't just pick crazy clothes. He wore the clothes of a prophet. And he ate locusts. Why would he eat locusts? Leviticus 11.22. Of them, speaking of insects, you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind, but all the other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. He's in the wilderness. What does God say that his prophet can eat? Have some locusts and honey, bud. He's dressed like a prophet. He's keeping the law of God, and he's proclaiming the king is coming. John ain't crazy. John is as sane as sane can be. John was a judgment preacher. He was... He was a little bit on your fire and brimstone side. He's out in the wilderness. He's calling the people to repentance. And notice, though, that word there, wilderness. When you think of wilderness, what do you think of? Out in Alaska, right? Way out in the woods. I mean, like, way out in the woods. So far out in the woods that you're a little further out in the woods. Nobody's there. That's not the wilderness. You can live out in the woods for a long period of time. You can kill animals, you can catch fish, you can start fires, you can drink water, you can go a long time. But the wilderness here refers to the desert. And you don't live in the desert for a very long time because there's not a whole lot of water, there's not a whole lot of food, and there's not a whole lot of life. So why was John out in the wilderness? Where did God typically meet his people? The Israelites didn't go to the oasis from Egypt, they went to the wilderness. Speaking of Elijah... In 1 Kings 19, he had to make a run for Where did he go? To the wilderness. Moses in the burning bush. It wasn't at Botanic Gardens. It was out in the wilderness. God often meets his people in the wilderness because a wilderness is a place you go where you realize God isn't simply an add-on. It's a place where you go and you realize that apart from God, you will die. Without him, you have no hope. Apart from him, you will never be satisfied. But with him, all your desires are going to be met. So to know the gospel, to know the good news, requires that at some point you must go to a proverbial wilderness, you must thirst and hunger to meet God, you must realize you're lost apart from God, you must realize you'll die apart from God, and you must realize you have no true joy or peace apart from God, and that's what John the Baptist is saying. Saying, prepare your way out in the wilderness, the Lord is coming. Baptism. John didn't invent baptism, he was however the first Baptist. He was a Galilean Baptist, not a Southern Baptist, and that's important to differentiate. He wasn't a Baptist, he was Presbyterian. He wasn't Presbyterian, I'm messing with you, stop it. He was called John the Baptist because John was a common name, and they identified him as John, the one who did the baptizing. But what was not common, that people did baptizing. See, there were baptisms that took place before. John didn't start the practice. But the problem was, 
what John was doing was so far outside the realm of normal. Jewish people go through ceremonial cleanliness processes. You remember Jesus once, uh, once was rebuked by the scribes and Pharisees for not washing his hands. Now, I have a problem with that. He should have washed before he ate. I'm a big fan of that. But they're dealing with ceremonial cleanliness. There were full-body ritual cleansings that Jews would go through. When Gentiles would come to, to enter into the covenant community of the Israelites, they would go into an immersion baptism all the way down, and they would come out cleanse, symbolically cleansing their bodies. This is a normal practice, but what John did is he called all people, Jew and Gentile-like, to be baptized by immersion in the River Jordan. So for the Jew, what he's saying is, you guys, I got news for you. You're just as dirty as the Gentiles. The king is coming, and you're not clean by association. You need to repent of your sin and prepare for the arrival of the king. And he's saying the same to the Gentiles. But notice also this, John baptized. People didn't baptize other people. It was a self-baptism process. You'd walk in, you'd walk out all on your own. Well, all of a sudden, John was doing the baptizing, and it symbolically represents that you can't cleanse yourself, one who is coming, who would cleanse you. So they're in the wilderness, John is baptizing, and as a side note, look at this. Verse 5, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. How many people? All of them. Fast forward to the end of the gospel. You have to go to another one for this. How many people were followers of Christ when he ascended. All the people, right? All the people in Judea and Jerusalem, because they were all baptized. How many people were in the upper room? 120. You can get yourself dunked and come up unsaved. That's what most people did here. They went out, they were confronted with sin, but you'll notice as we go through, they didn't truly repent. That's a side note, because what you need to realize is, baptism is not a mark of regeneration. Regeneration will be followed by baptism as an act of obedience, but just being wet doesn't mean one is saved any more than standing in a parking lot means you're a car. But cars go in parking lots because that's where they park. You follow me there? So all the people initially went out, but not all the people were saved. Now, let's start tying this in and see what we do with it. I'm giving you a whole lot of facts. Let's tie the facts together. So we got John out there proclaiming, baptizing, all the people are coming out. He's wearing the camel's hair suit and the leather belt. He's eating the locust. Now we're in verse 7. He says, and he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here's what you do with all this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You realize what's going on here is the fulfillment of prophecy dealing with the promised coming king, the one who has come as Elijah. Why do I say he's Elijah? Well, Jesus said that. When you go through Matthew, you'll see that. We'll unpack that more in the coming weeks. He's coming and he's beginning to fulfill Isaiah 40. What does Isaiah 40 look like in fulfillment? First, you come out of Babylon. They're out of Babylon. Then he comes and he, he establishes his invisible kingdom. He establishes, second, his millennial kingdom when he returns, and he establishes, third, his eternal kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. And we live in a time of grace when the king offers acceptance by grace through faith if we repent and trust. Now, John makes this very interesting little comment here about the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. We live in a culture where shoes aren't that nasty. I mean, I'm not willing to take your shoes off for you, but they're not that nasty. 
If you go back to this time, your feet would stink. They'd be covered in dust. And I don't know if you know this or not, but they didn't, they didn't toilet train their animals to go to the side of the road. So when you walked, you get some donkey stank and some animal stank and any th- sort of animal, you'd be walking through the stank. And the toilets weren't really toilets and they didn't flush under the ground. It was nasty. And your feet would be nasty. And untying the strap of someone's sandal was the lowest menial task a slave could take. And in fact, Jewish servants were forbidden from taking off the sandals and tending the feet of their masters. Did you know that? It was so low, the Jewish people didn't even do it. They'd have Gentile slaves come in and deal with the sandals because they were so disgusting. And John says, the strap of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. He's saying... The lowest of the low, low tasks, when it comes to this king, I don't even qualify for the lowest task. Now stop and think about this. There's a proclamation in the wilderness, prepare your way, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. He's saying the king is coming. You'll see the king shows up next week when we get to chapter 9 in the coronation. But John identifies his relationship to this coming king as a guy whose sandals he wasn't even worthy to untie. How do you think of Jesus? Is he your homeboy? You ever see those shirts? Jesus is my homeboy. I guarantee John the Baptist did not wear that shirt. Do you ever just call him your pal, your chum, a good teacher, a moral example? No. John's saying he's the king. He's God saves, God with us, Messiah conquering king, and I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Sometimes, don't we kind of want to put Jesus in a box? Don't we want to put God in a box and say, listen, God, like, we approach God this way. Listen, dude, I'm tired. I got some stuff I need to happen. I need you to work on that for me. And if you don't, I'm not going to mess around with you. Do you really think that's how you speak to a conquering king? John recognizes who Jesus is. And what's important for us to get out of this is understand this is the beginning of the great news of the King, Jesus, the Son of God, who is coming at this point, who now has come, and we need to prepare ourselves to greet him, to meet him in the wilderness, and we do so by repentance of sin and confession, because if we don't, he will deal with that sin. John knew who Jesus was. He called the people to repent and prepare, and he himself was prepared, and you'll see as we go through that John's goal in life wasn't to make much of himself, it was to make much of Jesus. Now, if you stop and think about that, it seems like a little parallel narrative that functions in the world we live in. So we got the story of the king has come, and then we live this life over here, yeah, that's just a great story, but everything's going swimmingly for me, and I'm a king, and I want the world to serve me, and I want to get in my way, and you all should be taking my shoes off. Do you see the difference here? As we go through this, and as we go through life, we're faced with addressing the question of what is truth? Do we determine truth on our own, or does God determine truth? See, I imagine if this happened in the American context, and you'll see it in this context as well. Jesus comes fulfilling prophecy. There's a forerunner who announces his coming. You'll see next week in verse 9 that he's baptized. You want to know why he's baptized? You've got to come back in a week, and I'll explain that. You'll see that God audibly spoke. The Holy Spirit visibly manifested himself. You'll see signs and wonders affirming what he does. And then you'll hear people say, eh, I don't believe it. Based on what? Based on the fact of this. 
that they don't want to admit that they're unworthy to untie the strap of his sandal. That's where the good news begins by a recognition that you don't merit God's favor. God doesn't look at you and say, you know what, I'm pretty impressed with you. God says, Kelly, you know, you're, you're, you're pretty good, pretty good person. I'm, just, I'm highly impressed. Why don't you come live with me forever? No, he says to Kelly, you, you stink. And don't look at Kelly because he says the same thing to you. He says, you stink so bad, you can't even deal with the stink on my feet. God's feet don't stink. But go along with me here. He says, you're so bad, you can't enter, even, even enter into my presence. You're so filthy bad. Here's the, here's the very dangerous news. I'm coming. Isaiah 40, I'm coming. And I'm conquering, and I'm going to bring peace and blessing and deal with all sin. Now, that should scare you, but there's a big but that comes before that. But before I do that, while you still stink, while you're still sinners, Christ came to die for us. We're not worthy of his sandal strap, but he washes our feet. He cleanses our body. He takes our sin upon him so that we might live with God. Now, do you see why it's called great news? Jesus came to a people who would perish and die and offers life abundantly based on what? His sovereign choice. What what do we offer to him? Sin. What does he offer to us? Righteousness. What's good news? Why is it called good news? I don't even think it should be called good news. It should be called great news. What's better news than this? You're going to hell, and God offers an attorney in heaven. And in the meantime, he'll transform you from the inside out, be with you forever, provide your every need, meet every desire that you have, or you could go with another approach if you want. You see, here's what the first eight verses tell us. We live in a time of present grace where God extends the offer of forgiveness. And as people who have received forgiveness, you know what we should actually do? Live like it. How do we live like it? Well, go replay the Ten Commandments. Go replay the the whole time we went through 1 Corinthians. It's not by law, not by obligation, trying to prove that you are right. It's by love and gratitude, obeying God so that you grow in your joy for it and so that you can live abundantly. And then the world doesn't look at us and go, you guys are like hypocrites. But when they do say that, we should say, you're absolutely right. But we're trying not to be. You see, when we live like this and we understand who God is, then we want to go out into the world and offer them hope, don't we? We don't want to keep this to ourselves, you know. Uh, Penn and Teller, there's the tall one. I don't know which one is what. One talks, one's tall, one's short, he doesn't talk. He's an atheist. He says that he thinks that Christian people are the most cruel people in the world. You know why he says that? Because he understands certain aspects of the gospel. He says these people actually believe that apart from the saving work of Christ, that I'm going to go to hell for all of eternity, and they don't even love me enough to confront me with this reality? Well, John's out in the wilderness, and he's not delivering a message that people are like, Yeah, I love it, man! Can you come speak at our conference? Hey, do you want to write a book? I'll publish it for you. That's not what John was about. He was about obeying the call that God placed on his life so that people might hear the truth and be saved. How many? Didn't matter. His job was faithfulness and obedience because he understood the reality that he was not worthy to untie the sandals of the king who was coming. Who is this king? What is he like? What has he done? What does that mean for our lives? Well, we got 15 and a half chapters to unpack on that. And I can promise you this. First, I'm not doing it today. But second, I can promise you this. It is mind 
mind-bendingly, amazingly, simplistically, awfully clear when you examine the gospel that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who came to save the world from their sin. His ministry began, he's 30 years old at this time. He had lived in obscurity and oblivion up to this point. But John announces he's a herald of good news. The king has arrived, the king is coming. And next week when we gather together, the king will meet John in the wilderness and be baptized. That is the coronation of the king and his rule on earth. His saving, his saving act of living the perfect life we couldn't and dying the death we deserve will begin to take place. So today, know the king was coming. He has come. You are not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. But by grace, through faith, you can approach him boldly and confidently. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the the clear truth that you have given us in it. I thank you for the fact that you have not just sent your son, but you have recorded for us the narratives recording his life. Not just from one person, but by four. Not just from one perspective, but by four. And in a way that is so unequivocally clear. For 2,000 years, people have tried to disprove these Gospels, and they have not succeeded. Archaeologists have tried to find things to show that it cannot be true, what Scripture says, and they have never succeeded. People have tried to live lives apart from Christ, and be joyful and content and secure, and they have never succeeded. But Lord Jesus, you say to people to come to you and be saved. You say your yoke is easy and your burden is light. We live in a time of grace when you offer forgiveness to anyone who will acknowledge the fact that they have sinned against you, that they deserve punishment by your hand, but by your work alone, Lord Jesus, they can be forgiven. I pray, Lord, that we as Christians would live as people who understand that we offer nothing to you on our own, but in you we have everything we need. And I pray that we would lovingly proclaim your truth to others, not seeing them as projects to be worked on, but as people created by you as image bearers, whom you desire to live with you for all of eternity. You tell us in your word, Lord, that your desire is that all should be saved and none should be lost. And you have so ordained by your will that your word of salvation should go out by your servants. Lord, help us to know your word, Help us to walk in the truth. Help us to understand the reality of who you are, Lord Jesus. That you have come, that you will come again, and one day you will make all things new again. My prayer is that we might all be a part of celebrating at the great banquet feast alongside you, and that you would use us to bring many more to dine in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.